Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we do our weekly political roundup with former Toronto Star journalist Richard Brennan. Also, the Bank of Canada is still pushing a 2% inflation rate. But why? And must we all suffer just so we can get there? And signs of chaos in Russia's military. Is this a good sign for the Ukraines trying to fight that war? It's all coming up with the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Speaking of Doug Ford, uh, some concern. He was in town in Hamilton yesterday making an announcement. Uh, but during the Q&A with the media, there were some concerns raised about uh, the investigation into the Greenbelt and his expansion of, uh, well, development into the green belt, which a lot of people are still concerned about, and who may have benefited from that. And, and as he was questioned uh, about this, and of course, we've not now heard that the Auditor General is going to be investigating and wants to get some information from a couple of the developers who benefited from that. Uh, the Premier was a little upset about that. Here's what he had to say. Matt Carty has details. We have nothing to hide. The Premier's comments come after two developers who benefited from this land swap went to court to fight a summons from the Auditor General's office. It's not even within our scope. The two developers have reportedly filed court applications to block or delay Bonnie Lissick's order to be interviewed under oath and hand over documents. It's part of a value-for-money audit she launched in January, and it is looking into a government decision to open up thousands of acres of Greenbelt land for housing development. Along with the AG's office, the Integrity Commissioner has launched his own investigation. This is private sector home, I mean property, and the private sector should be able to do what they want. The Premier continues to maintain that no one was tipped off when it came to Greenbelt land opening up. Matt Carty, Global News. Well, let's start there with our uh, weekly look at what's going on in politics. Uh, pleased to welcome back to the program Richard Brennan, a former journalist with the Toronto Star, who covers uh, Queen's Park and, of course, Parliament Hill for so many years. Uh, Badger, uh, nothing new, nothing to see here is usual response from politicians when investigations like this start. Are you surprised by the Premier's comments? Oh, no, because if you take his word at it, there's nothing, there's nothing to see here. Just exactly. uh, move along. Uh and and, and it's a journalist. That's what you would usually do. Oh, sorry to bother you, Mr. Premier. Okay, I'll go <laughs> on to something else, right? Well, you know, the <laughs> Premier must think that everybody in the province, other than him, is an, are idiots. But here we here we are. We have we have a, a Premier saying everything's okay, but let's just let's spin back here for a second. Uh-huh. Some of these developers bought these properties that were later opened up for development in the Greenbelt weeks before the announcement. Now, I'm sorry, but uh, I don't believe in coincidences. And he, now he's saying, well, the Auditor General has no right to look into it. Well, well, why not? I mean, if everything's okay, as you say, then why not open, you know, allow the developers to come before her and testify as to what they knew, what and when. But no, he's, uh, he's, I think he's, uh, I think he's running for cover here. I really do. I I saw this story and I figured, I mean, you have a, an incredible career, of course, of, of covering these sorts of stories. And, and you're right. I mean, I was being facetious when I said, you just walk away. No, you wouldn't. Uh, this is the sort of that you just love to get your teeth into. And because it's so ripe here, there's so many things going on here. Uh, as you mentioned, the timeline here is suspicious. Uh, I don't know the name, the developer here, but I mean, this is a, an individual who benefited greatly. He, he's the one that bought these huge tracts of land uh, just a couple of weeks before the government changed their minds about what they were going to do. So there's that element to it. 
and and then of course there's the the response that the developer had when Bonnie Lissick decided she wanted to have a, a convo with this guy. Uh, they said we don't have any records of that stuff. Are you kidding me? This this is one of the huge developers in the GTA. This guy's developed stuff all over the place. You know, hundreds of thousands of homes that he's built. And now he's saying, no, no, we don't keep records of when we, when we actually made the transaction. I mean, how, how naive do they think we are? Well, that's what drives me nuts, Bill. I mean, you'd have to be uh, beyond naive to think that there isn't smoke here. Again, we have developers in some cases who bought property just weeks before they were opened up. And the premier saying, well, you know, that's just a coincidence. Well, Come on. Like, I'm not saying the premier told these guys, maybe he did, but I, you know, I, I doubt that. But somebody tipped these developers off. You know, there's no doubt in my mind or anybody's mind out there in Ontario that there's something going on here and something stinks. And no wonder, no wonder he's, you know, castigating the Auditor General, Bonnie Lissick, for wanting to poke her nose into it. They don't want anybody poking their nose into this because it's going to reveal at some point that somebody was tipped off. There's no question in my mind. And there's a couple of things going on. Of course, the first response, by the way, from the the development community was uh, they're asking now that uh, that the courts at least pause this investigation. They, they, they love to see it just go away, but pause it. But, you know, the other side of that coin is... Bonnie Lissick's term as as Auditor General is ending soon, and they would love nothing more than to have this thing pause, have a new person come in and say, oh, no, we're not going to carry that on. Um, you know, you, you, the, the, the background on this thing, it's like you say, it, in so many different ways, you know, it stinks like a, like a bad fish, you know, and you've got to wonder that, that if, if anything, this should probably encourage Ms. Lissick and others to say, well, look, we got to get to the bottom of this. Well, you know, to the bottom of it, Bill, I, I think it requires a criminal investigation. <laughs> I really do. I mean, this this has the earmarkings of, you know, some nefarious things going on here. I just remember when the liberals, uh, liberal government attacked Bonnie Lissick and, you know, for for decisions she'd made. And the Tories back then, you know, said, how dare you attack the, you know, the Auditor General? She's beyond approach. Well, that that seems to have changed now. Now she's being told that she doesn't have any right to do this. She's she doesn't have the scope to do this. She's uh, you know meddling in something that she shouldn't be meddling in. Well, I think it's perfect thing for her to be meddling in. And knowing Bonnie Lissick, she's going to get to the bottom of this some way somehow. And I don't think it's going to be pretty for the government. I mean, tact you know as as an aside. This is this is one this is one thing that hasn't gone away, Bill. The four thirteen and this the uh, chewing up of the green belt have not. They both issues have not gone away, and they're sticking to this government like like spaghetti against the wall. They just can't <laughs> seem to to shake it. Well, I'm glad you brought up the liberal analogy because, as you say, they always try to say this is a partisan issue. No, it's not. This is the the auditor general doing their job. And when they went after the McGinney government, and we all know it was about the gas plants uh, and, and the, the contracts that were awarded for that, criminal charges were laid as, as a result of that investigation. I'm not suggesting that's necessarily going to happen here, but there were some questions about who benefited 
from that decision. And apparently a lot of people benefited from that decision who were donors to the Liberal Party at that time. Well, turnabout is fair play. I mean, she's got every right to ask who benefited from this. Well, apparently there was two or three groups that did who were major contributors to the Ford campaign and, and to the PC party here. Of course it's within her purview to, to, to investigate this and find out what's going on, isn't it? Bill, you and I have been around for a while. This yeah. stinks to high heaven. It really does. And I'm hoping, you know, she gets, uh, you know, get to the bottom of it or, or, or some or anyone else that might be investigating this as, as they, they are. The integrity commissioner is investigating this as well. And I, I can't think of anything right now that should be investigated more than this, quite frankly, because this is land that was set aside for very good reasons. And they have, and the premier himself said, I won't touch it. Don't worry about that, folks. I won't touch it. And he did. And who's benefiting from it? Developers that gave the Tory party all kinds of money. And all of a sudden, they miraculously found out that there was this land was going to be opened up for development. Isn't that a surprise? Well, again, who believes this? Not many. And, and you know what? There, there are levels of stuff. I mean, we all understand that, you know, when you're in power, like as a premier or a prime minister, I guess as the case might be. Uh, yeah. Okay. You, 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 you're going to, you're going to congratulate some people. You're probably going to reward some people. And I know the other story that I think is is way down the list right now is is you know the awarding of King's Council designations to a number of lawyers uh, who, by the way, all happen to be conservatives. Uh, you know, the former I, I, you know attorney generals from uh, the Liberal government uh, and and the, and the NDP government didn't even get the phone call, but the Liberals and 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 Caroline Marroni was one of them. And yeah, she wasn't even called to the bar until twenty four hours before she got this award. That doesn't really matter because there's no financial gain. There's nothing to that. I mean, that's that's patronage. And that happens in politics. This is different, though. This is we're talking millions of dollars here, uh, and not necessarily accruing to the, to the Progressive Conservative Party, but to these people by a government decision, and and that's not supposed to be the way it goes. Just remember that video when he that was that they uh, someone surreptitiously got when he was first running, yeah, for premier that said, "Come on, boys, let's divvy it up." You know, here it is. We're going to do her. Let's 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 we're going to divide this up and you you take what you want. And and it turned out to be in the end, he denied, denied it, but it turned out in the end to be exactly what happened. And, and I, I see Hamilton has now been forced to, you know, swallow a bitter pill and say, well, we're going to we're going to get involved with this. You know, we don't want to, but we, we basically, we have to, if we want to see how it's developed properly, it's a mess. Bill. It's an absolute mess. Your, your old colleague, Rob Benzi from the star, of course, is the one that wrote the story, but because he actually, uh, like you, I mean, they do the research on this and he went back, I think 31 times, uh, both Ford and, of course, his uh, municipal affairs minister uh, said they weren't going to touch the green belt 31 times. And, of course, then they've reversed that. And that's OK. That's politics. OK. You know, 
but they they might there's no justification but they might try to justify this but all of a sudden it's because somebody benefited from it i mean every government makes stupid decisions and that that's happened we kind of throw our hands up and say well there's just politicians being politicians but when the people that contribute to the party end up getting a big big you know huge huge advantage financially out of this it's it's i think it's the obligation of the auditor general and the integrity commissioner and everybody else to find out what's going on here bill you said millions of dollars i wouldn't be surprised at the end of the day these developers will be uh raking in billions of dollars because we're talking we're you know they're not going to build they're not going to build wartime housing on these on these lands that they're going to uh, get. They're going to build mansions, and and they're going to be they're going to go for huge money, and they are going to reap the benefits. This is a this is a cash cow if there'd ever been one. And the, and again, these are developers who are very government friendly, very Tory friendly. And they're going to walk away with big money. Well, I don't know what the time frame is. I mean, I, you know Bonnie Lissick. I've had her on the show a number of times. She is uh, she is diligent uh, and very dedicated to her job. And I got to figure that she's going to come up with at least some kind of a report before she finishes her term of office. Well, let's hope so. Uh, but that's but you said that they wanted to the two developers, uh, uh, Michael Rice and uh, Silvio De Gasparis. They want they want to prolong it. They want to push it off for a while. No wonder, you know. Let let let's uh, let's rag the puck here until she has to step down. Well, well, I don't think that benefits the taxpayers of this province at all. Let's hear from these two developers if they have nothing to hide, as as the premier says, has said repeatedly. You know, go ahead, folks, go somewhere else because there's nothing to see here. Well, let's face it. They they should be, and this, as you said earlier, that they have no no documents or no, you know, book on this stuff. Well, I don't believe anybody believes that. Somewhere, somehow, there's a smoking gun. And I hope, and I hope for, you know, for the taxpayers of this province that she finds out what exactly it is yeah well we've got a right to know because like i say when people start benefiting from this to the extent that these guys are going to benefit i think that's 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 worthy of, of pursuit uh we got to run we're just about out of time here as always badger thanks so much for this have a great weekend we'll talk again soon okay you too bill thanks Richard Brennan, former journalist with the Toronto Star, uh, probably itching to get back to work uh, with a story like this. And uh, as I say, the, the folks we've talked to uh, that cover Queen's Park are, are going to go after this. This is not a story that's going to go away, uh, notwithstanding what the premier may want to think. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Gone to the days of 8.1% from last summer, but the bank's 2% target is still far off. Our own forecast has inflation hovering around 3% for the next year and then coming down gradually to 2% target in the middle of 2025. To get there, Tiff Macklem needs to see decreased economic activity. But that's the opposite of what's happening in the housing sector this year. And despite higher rates, the bank predicts strength in housing prices is likely to persist. 
we've had very strong immigration uh, and temporary foreign workers arriving in the country. So, uh, you know, all those households need somewhere to live. And your the starting point is a one where there's just very little excess capacity. Mackenzie Gray, Global News, Ottawa. Thanks, Mackenzie. That's uh, his read on what's going on with the announcement from the Bank of Canada earlier this week uh, that there, uh, well, another rate increase. And they say there could be another one come, uh, well, Labor Day. They're not going to do one in August anyway. Uh, that's, thank God for small mercies, I suppose. Uh, why is this going on, though? And I, I know that we asked that yesterday on the program almost in a kind of a rhetorical fashion. Uh, but there was a piece in the Toronto Star, which I think addresses this. It's called The Bank of Canada is Still Pushing for 2% Inflation, But Why? Well, the author of that piece is going to join us right now and, and maybe maybe give us some explanation as to what's going on. Uh, she is Armin Yalnizian, of course, who is an economist and Atkinson Fellow on the Future of Workers. Armin, great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for this. I'll, I'll ask you the question. Why are they doing this to us? Well, okay. Uh, the The idea is... I think the central idea they raised this time when they said it is that um, core unemployed, uh, uninflation, oh God, <laughs> core inflation has dropped a lot uh, yeah. since last summer, but it's kind of been going sideways for a few months now. And they felt that if they didn't act and we were already at 3%, which is what they're forecasting to be for the next year, and something happened unpleasant on the downs, like to, to raise prices again, to make them spike again, we would be back up in territory that would be much more painful for people. So the short answer to your question is 2% is our insurance policy, that things don't get really bad, really, uh, really quickly for all of us. And I think that's a bit of a sign that they, they, they might be reacting to the fact that they felt like they started acting too late. But frankly, the big inflation push last year was what happened when Russia invaded Ukraine. Nobody mm -hmm. had that on their bingo card. So, you know, it's like it, it is these surprises that tend to upset the apple cart. And I think that's what they're trying to prevent happening again. So, so I'm being very, you know, it's, generous. It's a buffer then. <laughs> Yeah. It's, I, I, and again, you know, it sounds to me as if it's an arbitrary number, but I, I, I see what you're saying here, that they, this is our, our comfort level. This is a buffer in case something really goes wacky again like it did then. But do they factor in at all, and I know you, you brought this up in the piece that was in the star, the human cost of what they're doing here? They do. And in fact, part of it is perversely, that the human cost isn't showing up fast enough for them. And that's because unemployment rates are at 50-year lows. We have not used this kind of crank up interest rates to cool demand in an era of ex what they are calling excess demand. Uh, we, haven't, we haven't seen this configuration of things because when they did it in the 80s, when they did it in the 90s, we had very high unemployment already. Now we have very low unemployment. Plus in Canada, we added a million people um, Mackenzie Gray's piece quoted somebody that kind of nodded to that fact. When you add a million people to the economy, you cool wage pressures because you've got more people to fill in those incredibly tight labor markets, but you add demand pressures for housing and other basic goods. So it's six of one, half dozen of the other, and they had expected more labor market pain, which just hasn't come through yet. But again, to use their logic, they have said repeatedly it takes between a year and a half and two years for interest rate hikes to work their way through the system. That's why we're talking about people with variable rate mortgages that are now refinancing, feeling the kick in the gut and being really surprised. 
because you know there, are, and that's going to be true for collective bargaining agreements too. Not mm-hmm. all of them came up while the year of inflation was happening, so there will be this kind of over like this cascade effect where the pain just doesn't seem to stop because different people enter the pain point at different times. Uh, but for sure, it is felt as an aggregate over time. And that's another reason why I think that both the June and the July um, hikes were a little bit premature because we haven't seen the full work through of the first nine hikes they did, let alone 10 hikes. Well, and that's the, that's the concern. And I, I know in the piece that was in the Star, you uh, you quoted uh, uh, Andrew Grantham, who's the uh, executive director of economics at CIBC. Uh, and I, I think the quote here is, is is very germane to the discussion here. Uh, he says this effort to get down to 2% is just not worth it. Uh, he says history shows that the recent Bank of Canada rate hike and subsequent moves are at best unnecessary, at worst a mistake. Uh, is, is, is he the lone wolf or there are other people that think likewise? Uh, he is not a lone wolf in the world. He is an unusual voice in Canada. More Canadian economists lean more heavily into the orthodoxy, which is mm-hmm. we need to see more pain to be able to see the gain. But right now, we're not actually seeing the gain from Bank of Canada rate increases. The things that the Bank of Canada rate increases are doing is increasing housing costs, which is the biggest bite out of anybody's budget, rich or poor, owner or renter. And it's doing nothing about food costs and also nothing about gas prices, which are largely dictated by what OPEC chooses to do. And those, uh, like about over half of the reason we have seen inflation decline from last year is because of renewed supplies of oil and gas on the market. So you can see that central bank policies are not the driver of what is happening in inflation on the downside, actually are completely immaterial for food and are, are driving up our single biggest cost. So it does give you pause to say, is this the right medicine for this version of inflation? This version of inflation, to the extent that there is excess demand, as they say, in the system, it is primarily for housing. So, you know, we really need our governments to step up to the plate. It's not just federal. Every level of government can do something about improving housing supply and consequently reducing the pressure on jacking up prices. But given the scenario and given what's going on here, as as you say, uh, you know, you can go to the economics 101 and say, okay, this is how you beat inflation. Uh, you know, going to jack up rates, and then this is going to happen, and this is going to. But it's not the same. This is this is not our, our grandfather's, you know, inflation. It's a different scenario uh, caused by a pandemic, and and the variables are different here. Does it not register with these guys at the Bank of Canada that they're playing with a different kind of game here? I think it does because in their last rate announcement on Wednesday, when they were at the press conference, they were asked these questions very specifically and they they were ready for them. They answered them. Um, But their answers, I think they're still working through what it means to defend their own credibility. And by the way, the Bank of Canada is not alone. All of the central banks, all of the main central banks in the world are going through the exact same process with their public where they've dug down on the 2% goal just as a growing chorus of people say, why are we doing it? And they come back with, but we must do it because this is all we know how to do, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, the only tool we've got in the toolbox. But it does keep pointing the finger at where are our governments? 
But I was uh, I had an interview yesterday with an economist who pointed out that in good times, when interest rates and inflation rates are low, fiscal policies all over things like tax cuts. But when it comes time to spend, everybody loses their mind and stops acting. And there is nothing more important for us to do right now than move on housing. But there's also small things we can do. Like, you know, the school, there's very little governments can do on, on, on food prices. But we can make sure our kids aren't going hungry while they're in school. We don't have a national school food program. And the school food programs we have here in Ontario are grossly underfunded by the province, 15% of costs. It's really a charity move to have a food program, a school food program, where the need is the greatest, and that's where it's the hardest to raise money to provide it. So, I mean, there's things we can be doing. We can't fix it all, but we can certainly reduce the sting for those that, that are hardest hit, and we're doing nothing. It's like that Simpsons episode where uh, the character says, oh, uh, I, I've, I've done nothing, and I'm all out of ideas. <laughs> that's what it feels like. Well, yeah, but part of that problem, of course, is that, you know, governments, I think, are scared as hell to do anything because then, then they're going to be accused of, you know, causing more inflation by spe- government spending. So uh, we're going, we're chasing our tails here. It's it's really bizarre. Bingo. Bingo. That's Always, exactly uh, the point is that the people that want low uninflation also don't want governments to spend anything. In other words, they want you to lose your job. They're not going to lose their job. They want you to lose your job so that prices come down so that they can go traveling and go to restaurants without thinking about it twice. I agree that 2% inflation is ideal, but I'm not 100% sure that we're going to either get back to 2% without unnecessary pain, or even if we get there, that we can stay there. All these climate events that we're seeing, they disrupt production. They make things more expensive because you have to rebuild. You know, insurance goes up. You lose days of pay because you lose days of work because you can't get to work. That add to that population aging, add to that geopolitical tensions because of what is happening in Ukraine and how the global supply chains are reconfiguring because of populism. Listen, all of these things add costs. They don't detract from costs. It's going to be very hard to get to 2%. But the pressure is going to be that we have one in four Canadian who is a senior on fixed income. And two things happen when you've got such a large swath of people who can't work more to earn more and have plenty of time on their hands to complain. They are going to say, rightly so, I can't afford inflation. And number two, don't make my costs go up. And they're going to be a very loud and organized voice to bring down inflation at a time when nobody wants their taxes to go up and nobody wants governments to spend. This is going to be a fight for the ages. This is going to be a, um, a conversation that is going to shape our generation for you. intergenerationally what we do for ourselves and what we do for the people exactly. that come behind us uh is an inflation question well let's let's pick this up later on because it's, it's a it's it's a problem that, that the, i don't think governments quite know how to handle and that's why we always glad to have you on the program to talk about this thanks so much for this today uh stay well and we'll talk again in a couple of days about this okay will do have a great weekend you too thanks armin armin yalizian uh, economist and the atkinson fellow <laughs> You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The NATO meeting, of course, is wrapping up and uh, the world leaders have, uh, well, made some commitments to Ukraine about what they want to do and what they want to facilitate, I guess, to get Ukraine in as a member of NATO. And and that's something that's hopefully going to happen sooner than later. In the meantime, uh, there's a war going on. And, uh, well, it's... 
as you might have expected with all the talk of what was going on with Ukraine, uh, the Russians have responded. Uh, more drone attacks, of course, in that particular war. But there's something else that's happening, too, that's, uh, I think, intriguing for no- different reasons, and that's what's going on in Russia itself. Uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin is uh, now claiming that the uh, Wagner private military company is, uh, remember the ones that yeah, almost marched on Moscow a couple of weeks ago? He says they are not a legal entity. Charles Delesma has some details for us. Putin's comments add to the series of often bizarre twists that have followed the group's abortive revolt last month. Putin told a Russian newspaper late on Thursday, referring to the Wagner group, that there is no law on private military organizations. It just doesn't exist. Putin says Wagner had rejected an offer to keep its troops in Ukraine, where they have played key battlefield roles under the leadership of their direct commander. All of them, Putin says, could have gathered in one place and continue to serve, and nothing would have changed for them. Putin has previously said the militia had to choose whether to sign contracts with the Russian Defence Ministry, move to neighbouring Belarus, or retire from service. I'm Charles Stilatesma. So what is going on, and, and, and what is Putin's reaction to this? It just seems so bizarre over the last couple of weeks. Uh, our next guest can hopefully shed some light onto this. Hey, uh, he, is, of course, is Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of uh, Political Science at Carleton University. Elliot, always a pleasure. Thanks for the time today. Oh, thank you. Good morning, Bill. What's the story within the story here? I mean, you know, three or four weeks ago, we were talking about uh, this, this group of, of militia-paid uh, soldiers, of course, marching on on moscow and we thought we thought there was going to be a, a face-to-face uh they backed off uh they went over to belarus for a little while uh, we thought that though there was going to be as usually is in, in a situation like this in in russia uh some repercussions uh but putin seems strangely i guess reticent to, to actually discipline to try to do anything about what happened what is going on there <laughs> A mystery uh, wrapped in a riddle, wrapped in the yeah. in enigma. Yeah. <laughs> uh, paraphrasing Churchill. The reality is nobody has a factual uh, basis for making uh, firm statements on what's going on there. Uh, I think you and I have talked uh, over a number of year, uh, months and weeks that one of the big stories coming out of the war in Ukraine, which I thought was not getting enough attention, so we talked about it, was that the failure of the imperial ambitions of Mr. Putin was leading to something extraordinary, which was visible cracks, visible uh, disarray, visible competition at the very top within the Kremlin security and military apparatus that did come finally to a dramatic head, as you, as we know, we've talked about that, with the march of, of justice for Prigozhin, mm-hmm. uh, apparently... And this is all part of a tit-for-tat among three strong-willed personalities, uh, the Minister of Defense and the head of the armed forces and Prigozhin. Prigozhin has long claimed that he's been starved of resources, and his, they are so incompetent, they have bungled the war, he's carrying the war. And uh, uh, they responded by saying, okay, if that's how you feel, we're going to wrap up your forces into our command. Now we're going to have a new law a new process that all these unofficial groups are now going to have to actually sign contracts with the military. And that's when Prigozhin said no way and started to march on Moscow. And then that got called off for reasons which still aren't very clear. So what we have right now is uh, a fascinating situation where Mr. Putin has just now said, well, there's no legal basis. That's what's the opening hook for this uh, conversation 
for such private military companies. But of course, Shoigu himself has some. And it was just a few days ago that Mr. Putin, for the very first time, said, oh, yes, uh, we they are an arm of the Russian state. We've been paying them. We, we paid them a billion rubles uh, last year alone. So they are clearly are an arm of the foreign policy of uh, Mr. Putin, effective in Africa in particular. Uh, that is the foreign policy, as others have said, <laughs> of Russia is, is what Prigozhin's doing and uh, in Ukraine. So now we have a situation where the, the I don't know how to put it, the Frankenstein that was created by Mr. Putin to be effective has turned against him in some way, in a way that's embarrassing. It looks today as if what's happening is a systematic demeaning of Prigozhin himself, laying the basis for a legal uh, charge against him on corruption. But at the same time, the bottom line for Mr. Putin is he cannot afford to lose in Ukraine. And Prigozhin is the only one who's been effective with his, with his terrible tactics uh, in actually winning anything in Ukraine, in Bakhmut in particular. And that seems to be where we are today. But, you know, I think you and I talk about this. Uh, that, that was, of course, that crazy weekend where he was marching on Russia and then, boom, yes. you know, 12 hours later, he's he's in Belarus. Uh, but subsequent to that, you figure, okay, he's a dead man walking. I mean, you don't do that to Vladimir Putin. Uh, but just a couple of days ago, uh, Prozhokin and 34 of his officers actually met with Putin. Uh, so is is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Is he on side with Putin? We, we really don't know what's going on there, do we? Yeah, or has he disappeared? One of the yeah. fascinating things to me was that story broke, and that, that was the headlines, and everybody talked about it, except it was a story that was already four or five days old. It came out that there was a meeting uh, in Moscow. It came out that, uh, despite being called a traitor and treasonous and all that, that there was a face-to-face -face meeting in Moscow after uh, Prigozhin had visited his home in, <laughs> in St. Petersburg and had all his money returned to him and a lot of his weapons, personal weapons returned to him. So it's some strange Russian compromise seemed to be worked out. What hadn't been noticed was that that story was already a number of days old, four or five days old when it broke. And now we have several more days since, and nobody has seen Prigozhin uh, in the interim. So what's going on there is anybody's guess. But what looks to be the situation is that there's going to be a purge in the in the military structure of um, at the very top and up and down the, the layers within the security and defense establishment. But within the military, there's apparently a purge up being slowly built up that will lead to the removal of a number of people. And I talked about Sirovakan, uh, the General Armageddon, who was very, apparently very close to Mr. Prigozhin, has now... Uh, gone to rest as remember the duma has said that's the only good news i can report this morning is that the um, the general who perfected the techniques of committing war crimes against civilians in syria as part of russia's intervention there attack hospitals attack bakeries attack civilian uh, apartment buildings just attack and attack the one who perfected that those techniques are now being used we just saw, as I think you mentioned in passing, that there was a drone attack, another attack, a major attack yeah. on um, Kiev, but also on the hometown of, of uh, President Zelensky. So he perfected all that. Apparently, he's out of favor. So one good thing may come out of all this. But out, the bottom line 
the bottom line here is that if there is continued chaos and uh, disarray at the very top and throughout the echelons at the top in the Kremlin, that is good news for Ukraine because Ukraine is in the fight for its life and having further demoralization among the Russian troops. And we have the story of a, of a Russian general, Popov, who has now been dismissed because he tried to tell the truth, tried basically the same truth that Prigozhin was saying, we're not getting the support we need uh, and we're doing our part at the front, but we're being uh, stabbed in the back because the top generals are not providing us with what we need. So the real traitors are those who are not supporting the front line. All of that, and he's now been removed, and that was got that got leaked, and another general got uh, killed uh, by by a drone attack by Ukraine. All of that adds up to the fact that the disarray at the top now percolating down, uh, even to the field level, all of that is some good news for Ukraine because it will further demoralize the Russian military offensive. How stable is the government? And I'm not suggesting this, you know, that Putin's going to be out of a job in the next couple of days, although it wouldn't surprise me, I guess, if that happened. But Ella, he's got to be sleeping with one eye open. I mean, Pogosian marched on there. Now, whether they're friends or not, and I don't think they are, he's, you know, we always look at Putin as this strong man that, you know, if, if anybody dare cross him, uh, then they're toast. As you say, they fall off a balcony from 40 floors up or something. Uh, but Prigozhin is still there. Uh, he's got to be worried that 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 at some point that he may you know take another shot at this and figure, okay, I'm taking this guy out. Well, there's the bigger picture. We don't know if Prigozhin is still there or not. Yeah. Uh, keeping in mind that Prigozhin was the bag man, money man. <laughs> I mean, he, Prigozhin un undoubtedly has insurance policies of his own against Putin in case of any falling out because he knows literally where the bodies are buried, and he's. Uh, He's also been in charge of the troll farms, which were so effective in interfering in American elections. He has techniques of his own, maybe to protect himself. But the, the big picture here is that the very audacious uh, attack on Ukraine, which was supposed to be the one-week war, came a cropper. That is widely known now across the power elite uh, within Russia, not necessarily the general public, but the fact that this imperial adventure has failed and that there's defeat after defeat and now a stalemate and that Ukraine is getting stronger and stronger. All of that will probably play into reckonings. I've said a long time ago that the first time Mr. Putin said, I'm thinking of using a nuclear weapon. You have to, you have to think that the Russian generals around him said he just put a target on us, uh, on Russia to be obliterated. Uh, maybe it's time for the old man to go. And there's increasing evidence of that as he can as Putin continues to fail in his imperial adventure. So there's got to be disillusionment, but taking out an entrenched strongman is not an easy task. No, absolutely. I, I got about a minute left. Let me just ask you as kind of a roundup to what happened with the NATO meeting this week. Okay. Uh, we know that it looks like Sweden's going to be allowed in there. There's still some I's to dot and T's to cross and things like that, but I think that's going to happen. Uh, but there seemed to be a reaffirmation from just about everybody at that meeting uh, that we're not going away, Vladimir. Uh, we're going to we're going to see this thing through, and, and these guys are going to win this war. Uh, how does that get received in Moscow? <laughs> Again, the people around, since you ask what can be done to Putin, the people around Putin have to see what you have seen, that NATO is getting stronger and stronger. Finland's uh, accession really has you know, doubled <laughs> the border. So the mm -hmm. fact that NATO is now getting 
increasingly effective, not only in taking in members, but in now getting ready to have a long-term reorganization of their resources across Europe. Who's going to produce what? We're going to, getting ready to go to war. Uh, this was a wartime summit. It took steps to be there for the long haul. In terms of Ukraine, they've upgraded the institutional relationship there. Uh, they've also, uh, separately, the G7, and this was kind of the surprise. I, I knew that bilateral security guarantees of some kind would come out of this, in addition to the NATO pledge for uh, long-term supply of weapons and ways to deliver them. But in addition to that, the G7, Canada's part of that, has said, uh, we're signing separately on our own, not part of NATO, but, you know, we're here at NATO's announcing it, that uh, we're, we're signing long-term contracts uh, with, with Ukraine. We'll be there to provide the material they need. Please note, there was no guarantee that uh, forces would be brought to bear, that there was no Article 5-type NATO guarantee that an attack on Ukraine would lead to the use of G7 troops. But G7 has now said, Mr. Putin, you can't outweigh us. Uh, you can't outlast us. You can't outsuffer us. We're here for the long haul. And NATO backed it up with a lot of the activities it took as well. Uh, it's going to be fascinating to see just how this is going to be uh, addressed in the in the coming days, because usually it, it's that quick that there's going to be a response. And as usual, Elliot, we'll uh, look to you for some uh, direction on that. Thank you so much for this today. Really appreciate the time. Oh, good to talk to you, Bill. Okay. Have a great weekend. Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.